following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Raman and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcasts with this specific episode titled Primary Palliative Care in Urology. Joining me today are Dr. John Gore, as well as Dr. Jonathan Bergman. Um, just to introduce them both, Dr. Gore is a professor of urology at the University of Washington. He's a program director uh, of the SUO Fellowship in Urological Oncology at the University of Washington. And his expertise is not only in oncology, but also health services research and comparative effectiveness. Uh, Dr. John Bergman is Associate Professor of Urology and Family Medicine at UCLA, and he, he practices at the Safety Net Hospital uh, in the county um, and also has a fair amount of research uh, in the realm of uh, clinical integration of urology uh, within the VA and also chairs the bioethics service. So first of all, uh, John Gore, John Bergman, uh, thank you both so much uh, for joining. Really, really our pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much, Jay. Um, so, and, and I will, for our listeners, um, just just point out, and I, we were just having a conversation before we started this podcast, but um, this is sort of a really exciting uh, podcast. I think it really builds on um, the work that both of you uh, did um, at the AUA this past year as part of the Quality Summit that focused on uh, this sort of domain and realm of palliative care and urology. And, and perhaps um, I think something that we should probably across the board have a better understanding of and, and frankly just do better. Um, maybe I'll, I'll ask uh, John Bergman, just you know, kick us off your 20,000 foot view. Um, why, why does this matter? Why, you know, why is this important in urology? And, and you know, maybe use that as the appetizer for us to get started. So first, Dr. Raman, thank you so much for having us on this podcast. Um, I think the reason uh, John Gore and I were so excited to push this forward in urology is that the reason it matters is because it's such a huge benefit for patients. Um, we've had really good evidence for about the last 15 years that introducing some kind of palliative care into the management of patients with advanced disease is a huge benefit, not only for the patients, but for their families, their care caregivers, and everyone else. And there's really no disagreement about this. I think everybody in medicine agrees that palliative care is hugely beneficial and a good thing. Nobody's figured out how we can offer it to a broad population of patients. And that's part of the reason we're so excited that the AUA kind of took on a leadership role in pushing this forward, forward within urology. No, that's great. So, so uh, maybe I'd start off and ask you both, um, what is palliative care? And, and I think importantly, can you sort of explain for our listeners how palliative care is, is, is not synonymous with end of life care, right? I, I feel like that's a common misnomer. So, so maybe talk to us a little bit about palliative care, maybe differentiate how we should be thinking about what that entails and, and obviously how it's different than, than sort of the concept of end of life. Yeah, thank you so much, Jay. So, you know, palliative care is very much distinct from end of life care. And that's a common misconception that we confront, not just with patients, but also with 
with doctors. Uh, but, you know, importantly, palliative care is not denying patients any form of, for example, for the patients I treat of cancer directed yeah, care. Okay. It's additional care that is aimed at, you know, symptom management, helping patients uh, with bothersome symptoms that could be a consequence of their cancer or the treatment of their cancer. Common areas that palliative care focuses on are mental health care and pain management. Um, and, you know, what I always try to, to explain to patients is that, you know, I'm, I'm invested in your disease management, but, you know, a palliative care provider can help us with the other aspects of your survivorship that, that you know, require a deeper investment. Uh, and that may be outside of, of my particular area of, of expertise. Um, and so, you know, importantly, it's not, it's not end of life care. And in fact, in urology, there was a wonderful small randomized controlled trial that showed benefit for palliative care in patients with localized muscle invasive bladder cancer. So I think one of the things that Dr. Bergman and I are hoping is that people think about palliative care, you know, for, for adverse chronic health conditions, you know, upfront of a terminal illness. So maybe John Bergman, um, one of the, the concepts that I think was just mentioned, and this is what I sort of think about is, um, who, who are sort of these members of the palliative care team? And, and I ask this question in part because, you know, here we are, we're urologic subspecialists and, you know, we're pounding through patients at, you know, in the outpatient setting, 15 to 20 minutes a visit, and we've got these, these really busy clinics. But what is our team and what is the framework of, when we talk about providing palliative care, who, who is part of that and, and who, who is there to aid us uh, in this domain? Jay, I think that's a really important question because there's a huge misconception that of all the benefits that palliative care offers, if a urologist is going to take on a primary care model, there's suddenly going to be 16 new things that we expect the urologist to do at a clinic visit. We'll say, hey, Dr. Gore, you know, here's your patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer. In addition to talking, talking about the neoadjuvant chemo and the cystectomy and everything else, can you also address these other 16 domains in your 20-minute visit? The model for palliative care is much more team-based. So there should be somebody who is at the center of the hub who makes sure that everything is coordinated and everything gets done. But the team is really multifaceted. It includes things like other clinicians, whether it's the primary care doctors, the oncologists, the geriatricians. It includes social workers, nurses, chaplains, pharmacists, and in an ideal primary care model, all of those different clinicians would really work together seamlessly to address all of the patient's needs without too much falling on any one provider. And, and when, when should we be thinking about incorporating this concept into care delivery? You know, you have your inpatient setting, you have your outpatient setting, um, I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I feel like sometimes this doesn't occur until we're maybe in the inpatient setting, right? You, you've just done a major operation and then suddenly it, this comes on the radar, but, but that seems like that's probably not exactly where we want to start this journey. So maybe could, if you could both, or one of you could comment on, um, when should we be starting this? The consensus from the AUA quality improvement summit that you talked about was really that earlier is better 
So as soon as somebody has advanced disease, they would benefit from starting to get palliative care integrated into their management. The reason is you then can prevent a, a lot of the downstream problems that tend to happen if you don't integrate palliative care. So for instance, at our VA, we get a lot of ethics consults for a patient who is, you know, intubated and septic and not doing well. And we get an ethics consult on whether they should escalate care or not. And the daughter thinks one thing and the son thinks another thing. And there's no good answer to that question. The right answer to that question was about three or four months upstream when we knew that the patient had some type of, of advanced disease starting to bring about the conversation. It also gives the patient more time to think about it. So as soon as somebody kind of enters the advanced disease phase, if you introduce some of these topics, you say, hey, think about it. Let's talk about it your next cl clinic visit. Maybe bring your family along with you. Once you've clarified kind of your preferences and the things you want to work on, make sure that everybody in your support circle knows about it. That, I think, is the most seamless way to integrate palliative care into our management. It may look a little bit different for the different urologic subspecialties. So, for instance, for uh, John Gore, who takes care of patients with cancer, certainly as soon as someone has metastatic cancer, they would benefit from palliative care. But there's a huge need in benign urology as well. If you think, let's say, of a patient with FPMRS needs or stones, who also has frailty or other non-urologic issues that puts them at high risk. Those are people who would benefit from palliative care. Um, and really almost all of our urologic patients, once they, once they enter the advanced disease phase, would benefit from starting the discussion of integration of palliative care into their management. I think one, just to piggyback on what Dr. Bergman said, one unique thing about urology is that we intersect with a lot of chronic diseases in unique ways. So one of our QI Summit um, speakers has a practice that uniquely cares for patients with Parkinson's disease and lower urinary tract symptoms. And he was, number one, very interested in how to integrate palliative care into his own practice. And number two, you know, very interested in, in just trying to figure out if if early involvement of palliative care in his practice might be of benefit, and we would anticipate that it would. I, my kind of shtick with our residents is, is, you know, you should refer for palliative care when you think of it. Uh, and I think one of the, the benefits of, of this podcast and of the summit and other attention that we are kind of redirecting around palliative care is that it'll, it'll cause more people to think about it. So we, we've talked a little bit about uh, palliative care, and, and I think you both sort of hit the the, the buzzword, which is uh, the benefit of it, right? So, so I, I think you know, anytime we talk about um, integrating more into sort of the healthcare model, and this palliative care would be one such thing. I think the logical question that persons would have is, you know, what's what's the data? What's the, what's sort of the evidence that that integrating palliative care, as you both highlighted so nicely, has benefit? So maybe John Bergman, you know, what's the benefit of palliative care? Is there any data um, on it? And and maybe, you know, what, what is some of that data? I found this very interesting because both John Gore and I trained under Mark Litwin. And I remember when we were training, he told us that there are very few things in medicine for which we have level one evidence. But this is one of them. 
Since 2008, we've had level one evidence of what happens to a patient with advanced disease if you integrate palliative care early into the course of their management. And basically, if you do that, everything gets better. Their quality of life goes up, their symptom control gets better, depression goes down significantly. And what's really, really interesting is that while it leads to less aggressive care, patients actually live longer. There's no perfect explanation for why that happens, but we have several theories that I think uh, make sense. From the broader healthcare perspective, there's also a lot of data now that it's beneficial for the healthcare system, that it's cost effective and costs go down when you integrate palliative care, that it does a better job of addressing patient needs and symptoms when they have advanced disease. And if you look at out outcomes for families and caregivers, those get better too. So basically it's a win-win-win for patients, for families, and for the healthcare system. Yeah, I think a really interesting companion to the level one evidence that was uh, exploring palliative care as an intervention is companion level one evidence on the integration of quality of life measurement into the into the clinical practice of patients with advanced disease that also shockingly showed that patients that had integration of quality of life measurement into their practice lived longer. Um, and so for similar reasons, you can imagine that, that those, you know, really marry each other very well, that if you know better how your patients are doing and you have strategies to help them with their, you know, substantial symptom detriments, you can make them feel better and that can make them live longer. So, I mean, obviously, we, we, we have looked at this uh, with obviously both of your YouTube leading the efforts um, from the AUA perspective. But, you know, if you think about urologists or even urologic practitioners in the AUA, we're, we're a really small piece of a very large pie here. And that, that's the reality of it. So, uh, maybe if you could both, uh, one or the other, whomever, could just talk to us a little bit about um, what is the world outside of the AUA? Um, you know, what are the, the large groups, um, uh, large organizations? What, what are they endorsing with regards to palliative care? What are their recommendations? And then maybe even within the House of Urology, perhaps, um, what are the different subgroups that you both know about that have sort of espoused the use of, of palliative care? Jay, this is what I think is so fascinating is everybody agrees that this is the right thing to do. And every professional organization and society, including the AUA, recommends doing it. But the strategies that those professional societies have recommended as far as how we should implement it are untenable. So just as an example, um, the AUA has a joint statement with the SUO and ASTRO recommending early palliative care for patients with metastatic cancer. The American Society of Clinical Oncology has a provisional clinical opinion about integration of palliative care into standard oncology care. The National Academy of Medicine published a huge report called Dying in America that said that everybody with advanced disease should have access to palliative care. It's also supported by things like the World Health Organization, the NCCN, the problem is, even though everybody agrees this is the right thing to do, the model that's been recommended is take all of your patients with advanced disease and 
send all of them through a consult to palliative care. <laughs> That's a model that was built without thinking of the resources we have. Because if in all of the United States, we only have about 4,000 palliative care doctors. So that's about one for every 11,000 Medicare deaths per year. So clearly if your model is gonna be take everybody with advanced disease and send them to palliative care, you're gonna fail. And just to be frank, in urology, we failed as well. We say it's the right thing to do. The AUA say it says it's the right thing to do. But if you look at the data, it's somewhere between 4% and 11% of patients with metastatic urologic cancers get palliative care. And that makes sense because the model of delivering it is not one that is scalable beyond a research study. So, um, so I mean, I, I like, I like the way you phrased it and, and it's, it, you, you, it's almost like the elephant in the room, right? Everybody agrees on it. Uh, everybody agrees on the principle of it, but the implementation, uh, and the thought process of how to implement this seems like it's it's flawed, or, or at least not realistic with the treatment burden of, of persons um, that are there. So I guess um, when you, and I think you brought up the first point, which is there's about how many of 4,000 um, or, or four to 5,000 palliative care physicians um, in the country. Is that right? Correct. And so and so, and you said it's almost 10,000 plus Medicare deaths for one palliative care physician. Is that right? So I guess one of my questions, just when I, when I hear this, and when you look at palliative care clinicians overall, is um, what, is it just physicians or, or is there the opportunity within the palliative care realm to use advanced practice providers or other members to, to increase that sort of denominator of persons? Um, what, what's sort of that landscape like? Yeah, so that's already being done. Um, and um, there, there definitely are advanced practice providers who are palliative care providers. You know, palliative care, um, as John mentioned, sort of upfront is, is uh, is incorporating an interdisciplinary team into the management of patients. And oftentimes that palliative care clinician serves as a, a quarterback. They sometimes primarily manage some of the symptom management strategies that are needed. And sometimes they help um, direct patients to other symptom management strategies or symptom you know, providers uh, that can help uh, depending on the patient's needs. And so that's where, you know, I think no matter how many advanced practice providers we try to add to the palliative care workforce, we're still going to fall far short of the needs of the community of patients that would benefit from palliative care. And that's sort of a lot of the backdrop for which we, we conducted the QI summit, which is, you know, if this is a, 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 an area that we should all be offering, but that is susceptible to a massive workforce shortage, are there tools that they offer that are within, you know, our scope of practice or capabilities as, as urologists? Because I think pursuant to your question, I think, you know, the gap that, that Dr. Bergman mentioned in terms of 11,000 deaths per provider, you know, and, and those are the deaths. Those aren't, that's not the larger denominator of patients with advanced disease. You're not gonna find an adequate number of advanced practice providers to fill that gap. So, um, 
you know, when you look at you, you look at the paradigm shift, just pick oncology, but but I mean, I don't want to only talk about oncology, but if you just look at oncology and, and urology as a domain, the the care model has really evolved such that urologists are involved in more and more advanced disease, right? That that's been true for prostate cancer for a number of years now. Obviously, it's increasingly becoming common with bladder cancer, just with some of the immunotherapies as well as kidney cancer, with advanced kidney cancer, similarly with some of these systemic agents. So I do feel like um, as, as, as sort of stewards, if we're willing to care for this patient population from a disease perspective, we need to be able to also offer the appropriate care, not just for you know their specific drug for this problem, but in a broader scene. So I guess that this is my prelude to my question is, since you two obviously think about this a lot, what are some of the tools we should be using? So we, we now understand the problem. We understand we don't do it well. I think John Bergman said, what, uh, four, 4% for bladder cancer, under 10 or 10 to 20% for, for other urological cancers. So we're not doing as good a job as we should. So what tools can we talk to our listeners about that they can actually use in their practice or at least can start to incorporate into practice to make this more of a, a tenable thing? I think the biggest tool we have is, <clears throat> is the interdisciplinary team. This is not something that we have to do on our own. If you think of the broader team that includes the urologist, the oncologist, the primary care doctor, nursing, chaplains, geriatrics, social work, palliative care when necessary, psychiatry, that's really a massive team with a lot of expertise that in often cases we don't have that we can use to make sure that we're benefiting our patients and that we're benefiting their families. I think what that means is two things. First of all, one person needs to be at the hub of care just to make sure that everybody knows that this patient has certain needs and that you can harness the entire team to meet those needs. And I think we are able to do a lot of the initial screening and then outsource the management. So just as one example, I often think a lot about depression because we know that for patients who have advanced disease, between 40 and 45% of them have between moderate and severe depression. And it's always been so sad for me to think of how much effort and money we put into a pill or treatment that's gonna let someone live for two or three months longer. And if it shows efficacy, you know, it gets published and it gets covered and we implement it. But if that person is living those two or three months with severe depression, what is the benefit of their life during that span? And maybe the more, the more impactful thing we could do for them is assessing their depression and treating it. And if, you know, 40 or 45% of our patients have severe depression, I don't think anyone is saying that the urologist should treat the depression, but if we at least knew enough to screen it and then had either the psychiatry team or geriatrics or primary care manage the depression, it would be so much better for patients and so much better for their families. And it would be simple enough for us to do. And it would be a model that would be scalable beyond just an academic setting. Yeah, I think also, you know, um, I'm, I'm really grateful that Dr. Bergman mentioned the primary care doctor because, you know, some of these skills that, that, that we know need to be offered, you know, are within the expertise of a primary care physician. I think one thing that we need to uniquely appreciate is the longitudinality of our relationships with our patients. Uh, a hematology oncology fellow here conducted a pilot uh, trial 
that looked at screening for mental health disorders among our prostate cancer patients and found that when the social worker that was part of the research team offered a mental health care visit, it was declined more than 80% of the time. But when the urologist offered the mental health care visit, it was accepted more than 50% of the time. Mm. So that, that kind of chronic relationship that we have with our patients can make some of these services that may be challenging for you know, individuals to accept it can, it can make the importance of it resonate more deeply. Um, and so I think, you know, that screening aspect, it gives us an opportunity to take advantage of that kind of chronic relationship with our patients. And that's true, you know, not just in oncology, that's true in FPMRS, neurourology, stones, you know, in general urology. You know, I think, I think your last point is such a good one, which is, um, I, I think it's important to recognize that you know, all of which that is palliative care in urology is not urological oncology, right? It's, it's, that is a subset, but of course it is only a subset. Um, so John Bergman, just to sort of follow up on, on one of the points that you made, maybe um, my, my question is, you, you talked a little bit about the multi, sort of a, a, a sort of a multidisciplinary team. Um, in what context is that? Is that sort of team-based rounds? Is that uh, a conference where you discuss patients? What's the, the sort of the, the forum or the avenue to get these folks in a room together? And then, as you said, I, I think once you sort of have identified the maybe the plan, obviously different persons could play a different role individually in executing elements of this. But maybe what's the structure for either of you, UCLA or University of Washington? How do you actually get everyone in the room together so you, you discuss these patients and, and get some sort of plan together? I think something we learned uh, from the AUA Quality Improvement Summit that was really fascinating was because in our summit, we had people from different practice settings. We had people from academics, from private practices, from rural settings, from large group practices. And what we learned is that it really has to look different at every care setting. So at the University of Washington, uh, John Gore may have all of those people in clinic with him or if somebody's an inpatient, they might be very easily um, someone you can consult and get them to come see them. In a rural setting, the model might be really different. So I think the key is just to realize that these domains of care exist, that they need to be addressed, that the urologist, like John said, is really the best person to bring it up with a patient. And then in each of our practice settings, I think we'll develop a different model for how we communicate with the different providers about what to do with them. I think in the outpatient setting is ideal because we want to catch these things early. Going back to our, our earlier example, when that patient is intubated and sedated and septic in the ICU is not the right time to start right. talking to the family and engaging the interdisciplinary team. But if we do it in clinic in an outpatient setting, I think in each of our practices, we'll have a different method for bringing in the interdisciplinary team. But I do think it, is, it exists um, in each of our different practice settings. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. Uh, uh, John Goring, any thoughts on that as well? I think just to to build upon how that can evolve also in the contemporary era is, you know, we now have a unique capability to conduct virtual interdisciplinary care, um, and I think you know uh, EHRs obviously are a big stress point for us as physicians and urologists and. There's a lot of linkage between, you know, EHRs and burnout, 
But EHRs are also a huge connecting opportunity as they are sort of optimized for the care delivery, you know, systems that we all work in. And it's, it's very common for me to use, you know, EHR and virtual uh, linkages to connect to the palliative care interdisciplinary team. Um, and so I, I do think, you know, that is something that can be universal, irrespective of your practice setting, just given contemporary healthcare delivery and prevalence of EHRs. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point you, know, you both make. It, it's interesting. I, I, I was just having a few days ago, I was talking to my partner, Tulika Garg, who does a lot of work in bladder cancer and, and geriatrics. And she said to me that, you know, we, and she was specifically looking at geriatrics. She said, we need to do a better job of being able to, as urologists, ask these few basic questions that will serve as a trigger for you to understand a frailty index, right? And you don't have to be an expert in frailty, but you need to be able to ask enough questions so you know, hey, they've triggered that they may fall into this and then place the appropriate referral or get the, the, the appropriate persons involved. And her, her discussion with me was really centered on the fact of what could we implement in our practice that would be tenable, right? Where people would say, yes, I could do this. And it's it's not gonna, as you said, John Bergman, not gonna be the 16th thing on the list to do in a 20 minute office visit but also fundamentally, which would be the right thing to do to actually pick up, hey, I need to have this person see a geriatrician or a palliative care or, or a psychiatrist for, for depression, for example, or any and all of those. So I, I think that's one of the, the key things is, is us, as, as you alluded to, is being sort of the, the, the persons that they rely on, the, who they've had the most care with, to be able to at least start that process and, and, and maybe be the hub. I think one of you used that term very well, be the hub of the process there. I think that's a great point, and, and it can be very simple. In a palliative care skills training, they teach you that if you're going to ask one question, that one question should be, what matters the most to you? Hmm. And if we just start with that, I think we get about 50% of the way as far as where we need to go. So simply asking that question, what matters the most to you? Really? Huh. That's so interesting. So simple too. I mean, <laughs> you don't even need a, no formal sort of uh, a query, no question. I mean, that, that's great. That's uh, that's a really, I, I think, very practical, uh, very, very practical. Well, I, I guess I would say as we sort of come to the end of, of about our 30 minutes of, of talking, any any key take home points from each of you on, on what our listeners should go away from or maybe what resources is out there that that they can perhaps rely on uh, to take a deeper dive after our uh, what we've sort of covered today. Yeah, I think um, so. Number one is I think one thing that was highlighted in our QI summit and that we've discussed here is the importance of screening. I think um, importantly, the AUA recognizes the the importance of our topic not just through the QI summit. But there also is uh, palliative care educational content now that's part of AUA University and the AUA core curriculum, uh, which is obviously a tremendous resource and a core resource for, for our continuing medical education. Uh, and I would encourage people uh, to check that out, um, co-written by Dr. Bergman and Dr. Pauline Philippou, who was part of the QI Summit uh, Steering Committee as well. And I think the, to just to dovetail on that, I think the biggest resource we have that John Gore touched on 
is the relationship we have with our patients. We're, we're so unique in the depth and length of relationship we have with our patients that we really are perfectly set up to lead an effort to address their needs. And if we realize that we have that unique place in their mind and in their heart, and if we ask them that one question of what matters the most to you, and then we just take a step back and realize that we have a whole team of people to address those needs, I think that'll that'll go a long way towards serving our patients and making us better clinicians. Well, that's great. Well, I, I really want to thank uh, both of you, uh, John Bergman, John Gore. Uh, thank you both so much for taking some time. Thank you again for for the work that you do, and uh, and obviously the work that you've done to put a lot of this content together. I think it's uh, important, valuable, and uh, I think we can do better. As I said in the beginning, I think we can do better as a community. And we should do better. And, and obviously, both of you are leading the way on that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. All right. Yeah, have a great weekend.